Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. Now, my voice may sound a little different this week, and that's because I'm broadcasting on my phone from my car. That's right, I'm finally out of the closet. However, rest assured, I am still stringently following all social distancing recommendations while trying to simultaneously give my kids some semblance of a summer vacation. We are on a little remote car camping trip where we are staying far away from other people, but trying to get out of the house for a couple days. And before we get started, I just want to say I hope you were all wearing masks and observing social distancing and having the patience to get through this thing, which is really hard right now, especially with the lack of leadership in this country and no one really telling us collectively how to get through this thing. But when we see the examples from so many other countries around the world and in the European Union, there is a way through this disease and it requires sacrifice and it requires leadership. And I know you're probably as frustrated as I am with our our level of leadership in this country and with our response to this pandemic, which has been scattered and unscientific at best. So please, please, please wear a mask, follow the distancing rules that have worked for other countries and understand that if we all make sacrifices now, economically, recreationally, with family, we can get through this. But we have to count on ourselves as a community rather than our leadership right now. And I never thought I'd be saying that in this country. But I just want you all to know that I am doing my part and I hope you all are too. And in the spirit of that, we are rerunning podcasts right now until it is safe to make new ones and until we figure out what we're doing with off camera. But this week, I'm bringing you one of my favorite podcasts of our entire series. And in some ways, it may be my favorite one of all because it really embodies the best of what off camera has to offer, which is it is a personal, emotional and informative look at a career from the inside out brought to you by this week's guest Keegan Michael Key who does such a great job of explaining his process that it actually sheds light on who he is as a human being and as an artist. I just love this episode. I never get tired of listening to it and it gives me great pleasure to present it to you today. So enjoy Keegan Michael Key and my conversation. Get ready to be inspired by improv and please stay safe. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay away from other people as much as you can and we'll get through this together. You can still find me at sam at offcamera.com if you want to write me a letter and tell me how you're getting through this pandemic or just share whatever's going on in your life. I miss coming to you all each week live and hopefully we can return to that at some point in the near future. But until then, stay safe and enjoy the show. Hey folks, Sam Jones here, and welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, comedian, and master improviser, Keegan-Michael Key. You know, in preparing for the conversations I have on this show, I tend to see a lot of movies. But not every movie fires me up so much that I run out and buy a book to delve deeper on a topic. But that's exactly what happened when I saw Keegan-Michael Key's film, Don't Think Twice, which explores the backstage world of improv comedy in a way I've never seen before. And I'll bet you haven't either. You probably know Keegan best from his last name, since it's one half of the hilarious, razor-sharp comedy duo, Key and Peele. He's so quick and funny, it's hard to imagine him as anything other than one of the best comics working today. 
But he says that if he'd had more confidence early on, he could have just as easily been playing Hamlet in a Shakespeare festival near you. In this episode, Keegan talks about how he earned the proverbial 10,000 hours before the age of 10, what he learned about comedy by taking it seriously, and why he showed up 30 minutes early for our conversation. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Keegan. Hi, Sam. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Good. You know, uh, uh, it should be known in the, in the wider world of the show outside the four walls that you were here 30 minutes early, and that's impressive. I was. I was here 30 minutes early. I, I try to make an effort to be early for everything. Um, I think I have this weird thing where I never want to be left out. So if I'm there f- first, <laughs> then nobody can... I, I'm sure I didn't get left out of anything. So it's usually like go back to high, like grade school where it's like if you show up late, they've already picked the team or they pick the right. I, I, I know that we just started, like we literally just started the interview, but I think it goes from um, from being adopted. So let's oh, just get deep let's into get it to already. It. <laughs> let's just get right into it. Um, I think that there's some kind of latent sense of panic that I'm gonna get left or something. You know, you know, there's Isn't something to it, like something about that. You know, and then cut to now, and that's why I'm an actor. <laughs> and now we're do- we've done it. We've done it. You just fixed all my problems. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Wait, so that's interesting, being adopted and feeling like I have to make an effort because I wasn't, I, I wasn't, like, in the situation I was supposed to be in from the, from the start or something. Right, yes. Yeah. So that makes sense, yeah. And which, which, uh, which, of course, is a mythos. It's not true. Um, I, I'm very fortunate because in my life I have a relationship with my biological mother and, and right. she's a, a pretty extraordinary person. So, so it's nice to know that you can work on that stuff with that person in front of your face, yeah. you know, which is great. So I've been saying that for like 35 years, but I don't know that, 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 that the correlation necessarily holds together. But it, but it could. Yeah, it could be the truth. Well, at the very least, it probably fosters as a kid an insecurity about yourself and your validity. Right, and I think what happens is you get to a place where you start to develop uh, a really high emotional IQ when you're young because what you're doing is you're looking to see what everybody, what would make everybody else happy. Like how can I make everybody else happy? Because if I make you happy, then you won't go away. Wow. Does that make sense? You yeah. Know? And, and that makes you a fantastic actor. Because you're observing <laughs> because, it. Oh, I've been, I've, I, I, from age three to age 10, I'd already done my 10,000 hours. Right. So it's not, you know, and I, I've, I've, had, I've had roaring arguments with people about this when I go, no, no, I'm not gifted. I'm not gifted. I'm just a super master expert at this before I ever went to theater school. And they go, no, you have an intrinsic gift. Like you're, we're, we're made to have intrinsic gifts to do certain things. We're wired certain ways. So I'll, which I actually believe, but I like to do the argument anyway. <laughs> I like to do the argument of nurture. I like to do the argument of nurture, yeah. which is this event took place in your life. You started to behave this way, and then you happened to slip that behavior into what you did for a living. Right. If you wanted to do, just go, live in cop-out land, you could always just say to your kid, it's grandma's fault. Yeah, right. Well, you know, it yeah. brings up so many questions because what you're saying also is that like somehow our those certain gene triggers get turned on by our the modeling of our parents? By the but nurture. then you're adopted. So does that mess up the, that sequence? When my adoptive mother met my uh, birth mother, she said, "Wow, there it is. I see it. I see it." But then we also looked at my behavior and said, "You know, they met. They hugged." I was very, I've lived a very charmed life. It's ridiculous. Like well, I should was back a, up. Just give me a brief version of, of your weird family yeah. situation. Adopted at three months. 
by an interracial couple who were both social workers. Okay. So already had some kind of working knowledge about the, the, the dy dynamic of an adopted family. Then they had a child, and I grew up with him as my brother. He's been my brother my whole life. And, um, and then mm, 26 years later, found my biological mother. And um, so th that's the shortest version of the story. It's, it's interesting because your uh, adoptive parents and your real parents, it was, same, it was a biracial situation. Same demographic, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. White mom, black dad. Exactly, white mom, black dad in both situations, yeah. So there's a lot of cultural overlap. Yeah, adopted, grew up, you know, middle class, Detroit. Uh, raised by these two people, and then I have more family from the biological side, from both my father's side and my mother's side, who are people I don't, you know, some people I don't have really a huge relationship with, but we're all aware of each other. How did you find your birth mom? I just, uh, there's a, a person I hired in Michigan called a confidential intermediary. Oh, you did? And they had How carte blanche. 26, 25. Okay. And they were carte blanche, and they had, they got to go through all the files. My mom was the oldest of seven. They found her through her married name. You know, they're looking for uncles. Right. Uh, you know, because they would keep their name. Found her, put me in contact with her, and we started a relationship 19 years ago we started. Did she have regrets initially that... Yes, but I think that part of that, there's nothing I can do in regard to that with her. Sure. She's got to, sure. and it's tough, but she's, she's been working on it her whole life, is letting go of that grief. Uh, I, I, every time I call her, I just go, the proof's in the pudding. You made a selfless act. You chose to do a selfless thing and look where I am. Yeah. That's because of your selfless act. Yes, another person did a lot of work helping shape me to become the person I am, but I'm here. I'm here because you didn't take the selfish path and say, I, you know what, I can do it. Right. I don't care if all the odds are against me. I'm going to raise this baby. It's my baby. The baby fulfills me, which is exactly how she felt. This baby's going to fulfill me. And she still had the wherewithal and the courage. She didn't have the She had the emotional wherewithal to, to, to give it, to give me up. Right. So, and you can talk to other adoptees, don't have any interest in meeting their birth parents. I can understand. It's fearful. It's scary. It goes to the center of your worth. I want, I understand. But because I was raised by social workers, it was almost a foregone conclusion that I would make an effort to find her. Well, also, when you came in here this morning, one of the first things that we discussed was how you have to keep reminding yourself in this world where you're meeting so many talented people that everybody's just a human. <laughs> yes, everybody's just a human, right. And, and yet, when I hear you talk about the story of, of you know, coming here early because you don't want to be left out or being a dog, I, I relate that also to looking at other people and going, they have hopes and fears just like I do. Right. You and I were discussing earlier that at the end of the day in our industry, it's always just a series of, ch uh, of challenges. So the difference is, do you look at the challenges as opportunities or do you look at the challenges as problems? And that's something that as I've gotten older, sometimes I'll get into a weird mode where I'll say, all right, the stakes are really high this time. No, 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 no. Why? Why weren't they higher why weren't they higher here? It's the, 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 the issue or the challenge is a challenge. It's just a challenge. It doesn't matter if you're in a $50 million comedy or you're doing a play at a 60-seat black box. How do we decipher and give clarity to every moment in a piece of art? That's all that matters, Keegan. Remind yourself that that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if you're in the black box or on set. Are you... Are you helping the director, Joe Schmo, 
make the clearest version of this story? Or are you helping Martin Scorsese make the clearest version of this story? It shouldn't matter. You're an artist, you're a craftsman, and you're putting your tools together to tell a clear, concise, and hopefully moving story. That's all that should matter. So I have to keep reminding myself of that. Yeah, what I hear you saying is the stakes for an artist are always the same, which is make great art. Beautiful way of putting it. But the stakes of, you know, once you get a career going, I don't know, I relate that to an improv sketch. Like, once it's working, you don't want to be the one to torpedo it. And sometimes you could probably operate out of fear rather than opportunity, correct? Correct. There's got to be moments where you start practicing taking a breath and asking yourself, am I making this decision out of fear? Am I making this decision out of lack? Am I making this decision out of ego? Or am I making this decision to, to be proactive and, and solve a challenge? Right. Or rectify uh, a misunderstanding? You know, it's funny. You say you got your 10,000 hours between the age of, you know, three and 10. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much you dealt with fear during that part of your life. I think every, like, using the, like, the concept of code switching, which okay. is a big theme that run, certainly ran through Key and Peele, and I think runs intrinsically through both me and Jordan's life, is that everybody just chose what they're, we all do code switching for survival, Simply for social survival. Right. And I would imagine your situation was confusing because you were probably seen at school as one way and then you'd come home and... and oh, yeah. Cut back 30 years ago. I came home and I, I, from school one day and I was like, um, um, yeah, Ma, I mean, how, how you want me to help you with a dinner? You want me to help you with dinner? My mom's like, what are you doing? What? what? Why are you talking like that? <laughs> My mother just said, why are you talking like that? And I just... You're stuck between these two worlds because all I want is to be comfortable and accepted. So I need to be accepted by you and I want to be accepted by them. So they're going to talk like this and that's how their parents talk. That's how they was raised. So that's how you're supposed to speak. And my mother would then say to me, but don't, you're not, you're not using proper English. And we live in America and I need you to use proper, I would really appreciate if you use proper English. You don't need to talk like that, honey. Just be yourself. Easy for you to say, ruddy, complected white lady from northern Illinois farming community. You know what I mean? That's where but then she had her own her own situation when she was younger in that in that element. Well, it's, it's, it goes back to the idea of when you're a kid, you have certain things that are your truths, and then you look back and they're incredibly naive. And I would think that for you, with, with all of that going on, you probably carried some inaccuracies for a while about life that had to be worked out. I mean, is there a good example of that? Well, the first one we discussed earlier was that, um, well, I'm not worth anything because why would this person have given me up for adoption? Well, that's very selfish, King, and you're really only thinking of the situation from your point of view. Here was this young woman, and I don't want to get into all the details, but here's this young woman, and she found herself in a situation, and then my mother expounded upon that with me. My biological mother expounded upon that and, and gave me her side of the story. And that's how I got to get to a place where I'm at today. You know what I mean? But back then, the story would have been, um, uh, also, it's just excuses. It's excuses for bad behavior. I can behave badly because I'm adopted. Well, sorry, buddy. Member of the human race, here with everybody else, get your shit together. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Because you have to interact with other people now. And um, is there another story like that? Well, I remember saying to my... A professor, so this would have been, I was in graduate school, and I said to my professor, oh, I want to be in Hamlet really bad, and I want to play Horatio. And I remember my professor saying to me, why Horatio? 
I'm like, well, he's his best friend. I feel like that, that's who I am. I'm the best friend guy. I'm the good time guy that everybody likes. And he goes, but why couldn't you play Hamlet? And I go, I don't, uh, but why? Why are, you, why are you not? You're getting the same training all these other actors are. You're handsome. Uh, what? No. I'm the funny guy. Shut up. No, no, no. You're handsome and you're vibrant and you could play the lead in a play, especially the most important play in Western civilization. You can play Hamlet. I wanted to punch him. Stop fucking with my mythos. Right. I want to, no, I don't want to push beyond my comfort zone. I want to stay here. I'm Horatio. I'm the fifth lead in the play. I don't think you're the fifth lead in the play. I think you can play Hamlet. He wouldn't shut up. <laughs> Kept on talking. Why can't you play Hamlet? Why can't you play Hamlet? You know, and, and that's another story. I had just made up in my mind, I'm never going to be as good as these other people. And so the, it's okay that I don't get the lead. No, it's fine. It's fine if I don't get the lead. I, I don't deserve the lead. I shouldn't be the lead. I shouldn't be the lead. Isn't that amazing? Because you also would assume, I would think at that age, that the way you saw yourself was the way everyone saw you. you everyone does that. Yeah. Everyone assumes that everybody else has your intel. What's interesting and fascinating and hopeful is they have completely different intel that's probably more accurate than your intel. About you. Oh yeah, what you're thinking in your mind, in fact, in life is a thought, doesn't make the thought accurate. Right. <laughs> Feelings aren't facts. Just because you had a feeling doesn't make it a fact. Yeah, thank God you ran across that guy too because every time we allow someone to hold a mirror up and we, we sort of accept that. Right. I mean, there are people who just won't look no, at the mirror. No, they'll, they'll just punch the mirror and throw the mirror away. Right. Or run away in the opposite direction, away from the mirror. But it's so interesting to have that, have that conversation, and you were so sure that he was wrong at first. That he's 20 years older than me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what did I know? I was 24 isn't or 25. That, isn't what that the, funny? What God. did I know? Yeah, it's interesting. And, um, and so now I'm in this uncharted territory in my life where I am in a different spot now than I was then. And I feel like, yes, I could play that role. 100% I can play that role. And there have been projects that I've been attracted to of late in regard to not only my professional career, a professional maturation, but also personal maturation being woven in with professional maturation. Right. Which is saying, get out of your comfort zone and uh, play a character with more stillness. Don't screw up your face during this take. Just exist. And in the movie, Don't Think Twice, Mike Birbiglia had given me quite a lot of direction. Well, let, let, let's yeah. talk about that. So you're talking about Don't Think Twice. I'm talking about is, the film Don't Think Twice. Which is a film that you've just finished that's incredible. And, and it's so, it's, I mean, it's funny. At the same time that it's exactly the world you came from yes. and the world you inhabited, but it's such a different way for an audience to see you. And you play yes. Jack, who's an uh, improv uh, aspiring, sketch, yeah. aspiring improv in a sketch troupe. Called, called The Commune yeah. in New York. And like a lot of these improv places are, sort of, it's a hopeful stepping stone to a Saturday Night Live type of situation. And we get to see in this film the, the deep interior of uh, an improv, improv sketch group and, and the family that's created yeah. through that. And all the dynamics there. All the dynamics, right. So first off, maybe just take me back a little bit to um, how, how this project came across like if you helped develop it or if it no I didn't uh, it, it came across my desk uh, b- b- uh, Mike Birbiglia the director producer creator he wrote writer, it well. he wrote it he directed it he's in it he produced it it's, it's really his project um, he and I have the same agent and my agent said 
and he said, and he said to my agent, "Any chance you think Keegan Michael Key might be interested in this? Since it, since the path of the story is very close to his path, exactly." And, yeah. And he said, "I think Keegan might be interested in this." And my agent and I, ironically, had just had a conversation about me saying no more to projects, and so I kind of gave myself this 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 new caveat, and I said, "Okay, the next script that comes past my desk, in less tears, I can't get reclaimed." Verklempt's not enough. <laughs> Tears have to come, they have to be, I have to feel wetness on my face. If that happens, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I, uh, I read the script. I was shooting a movie, and I, I'm sitting in my apartment in New Orleans, and I read the script. There they come. And then, and then I was blowing my nose, and I'm like, oh, God. Uh, and then I called my agent and went, I got to do it. Well, it's funny because I feel like there have been films where you know, improv has been a part of the movie, but there's never been a film about that, that goes so deep into this world and takes you into the lives and into the, the rituals and the, and the superstitions and the backstage things. And I think the thing that struck me almost the most is, is how there are archetypes in, this, in the film that, that were so well-developed. Um, mm. Like, there's the teacher, who is the person that feels, feels like they deserve a career because they taught all these other people how to do it. Maybe they don't realize that their skill is to teach and not to do right, it. Right, right, And right, then right. there's the quiet one who, you know, maybe is the funniest one of all but doesn't have the confidence or the ambition to ever make it to where they can go. And then right. there's the purist, the actress Gillian Jacobs who plays uh, your girlfriend who really just does love improv and doesn't have big dreams of stardom. And then there's obviously, like the very ambitious guy who right, you right. play and you play the lead and the film really takes off when you get an audition at a Saturday Night Live type show. Right, 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 right. And I was wondering if it made you re-examine those years when you were in improv and brought up memories and it made did. you look at your own behavior. Well, because I played a character in the film but I identify with other characters in the film. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I identify more with uh, two other characters in the movie. That was more me. Now, Anybody who goes to the second city, somewhere in the back of their mind, there's that sense that I could be the next one. So I remember I was talking to somebody who was very high up in the company at Second City who I've been friends with for years, I've been friendly with for years. And he said to me one time, he said, you know, you can teach the skills to anyone, but then certain people have a thing. And whether that thing is from nature or nurture, they have a thing. And if the timing works out, they go to another level. It's not for everyone. And it's not going to happen for everyone. Remember, he was mentioning that to me as um, the, our numbers started boosting in the training center at Second City Chicago. Thousands of students. And a good deal of them were like, I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live, man. I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live. And you're going, you probably won't. <laughs> you you, you yeah. probably won't. Because remember... For the record, at the end of the day, I didn't make it to Saturday Night Live. I was on a different show. That's right. You're on Mad TV. On Mad TV. So, I actually, but but in in regard to what you were saying, I identified with a, with another character altogether. Probably more Gillian's character. Really, I was more. Well, I say this now. Maybe it's not true. I felt at the time I was content. I could live here 
in Chicago and die here in Chicago. And maybe one day I'll get a chance to go do a, a really great play at the Steppenwolf. Or I'll do something wonderful at the Goodman and I can get back into drama, which is my background. And then I'll go teach classes at Second City and I'll just live this wonderful artistic life. And we'll have a mo- moderate, you know, I have moderate success, but I'll be fulfilled and I'll live in my condo in Chicago and we'll just go on about our lives. I, I, I really believe I would have been happy with that. But would I? Because I didn't say no when the auditions came. Right. And did I ratchet it up the night the people were there? Maybe. I think there was a couple of nights when I was like, I think I might have said, if you see me in the room and you're about, I, I might have said to a stage manager, if you see me in the room and you're going to make an announcement about who's in the, in the crowd tonight, I don't want to be there. So make that announcement when I'm in the bathroom or in the back hallway or I'm looking over my notes. You didn't want to even have that, that dilemma of... Uh, or maybe it's nerves or... Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I just... And part of it might have been, once again, this, this issue of me wanting to be accepted by everybody. So I don't want anyone to think I'm hot-dogging. I hot-dogged a lot. But always because I would get nervous that the audience wasn't laughing. They should be laughing nonstop the whole show. I'm there for them. Well, you know, it's funny because in the film, there's such a beautiful, nuanced way of describing that very situation you're in. Because, you know, at the beginning of each show, there's an improv tradition. I know it. I know it happens at I.O. It probably happens everywhere of everyone looks at each other and says, I have your back. I have your back. I got your back. But then the film explores how you know, desperation or, or ambition can actually be a little of, I can also put the knife in your back. Right, that adage goes out the window. <laughs> that That's adage right. goes out the window because you think this is what you're supposed to achieve. And the movie is an exploration of what are you supposed to achieve. Yeah. And you as anybody, what you're trying to achieve is the truest, purest version of you. And maybe that means you stop improvising and you write a book. Maybe that means I'm meant to be a teacher. Maybe that means um, I want to um, I want to just do this. And maybe that means I'm supposed to move on to the next thing. That's what everyone's trying to figure out in the film. It's kind of thrust upon them. Well, that's where the movie gets really interesting: is watching how the group dynamics change when someone has success. And I think it's that time when when you see someone you're so close to. Like, not many people have that opportunity to be so close to somebody that all of a sudden takes a giant leap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how that makes you examine yourself. You know, did, did, did you kind of go through that yourself a little bit? There were a couple of things that happened where I know people went to our boss and said, he's stealing focus, he's showboating. And I never said anything to anybody, and I'll say it now. I'm just like, but you're not being funny all the time. And I don't care what they want us to do artistically, that's what they're here for. The audience is here to have some drinks and have a good time. Uh, so my, I'm like showboating. My job is to make is to shit or get off the pot. They need to be laughing. That's why they're paying for tickets. If you want to dig down deep, that's just me wanting acceptance of the audience more than other people in the in the show. I care more about the acceptance of the audience than other people care. They care maybe maybe and I'm, I'm willing to admit maybe they care more about the art than I do at that time in my life. But I wonder if that is also the ingredient for the success that you've now found. Right. So it's like almost like that self-fulfilling prophecy that turns out well. Right, exactly. Like it, a friend of mine said to me, well, if you're addicted to something, at least it's broccoli. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> at least it's leafy greens, you yeah. know, as opposed to cigarettes. I don't know what the jealousy was. I don't know. I'm sure people sat in a bar 
one day. I had a friend who got drunk one time in a bar and said to me, there's people, there's people here, they're, they're talking about you. And this is saying they're talking about you. <laughs> you, you know, and, and she didn't mean it in a good way. You know what I mean? Right. They're talking about you. I mean, and I could only, then of course my imagination runs wild and goes, oh, there must be someone sitting at the table over there going, it's just because everything he's doing is hacky. It's all hacky, unimaginative shit. And he's the one that's going to get the show. Isn't that funny that that's, and that's probably your setting from way, way back. From way, way back. I, 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 yeah, that's, that's, the, the, that's not default information. That's old habitual information. That, that's where my mind would go. I put more energy into the campaign of making people like me, and as far as I know, from my data, it was working. Yeah. My friend, a very good friend of mine who came up in I.O., he said to me a while ago, he said, man, I read that Birbiglia script. He goes, that is tough stuff, because I was in an improv troupe, and I was in a theater where Lauren would come and watch. And he goes, and I remember watching, it's, it's horrible. When your dream comes true for somebody else. And you're right there. Said, you your front dream, row seat to it. You have a front row seat to your dream coming true for someone else. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship. I want to tell you about this advertiser because it's a really unique situation. The fellowship decided only to advertise on this show because our audience is full of creative individuals. And it's a great honor for me that the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship chose to pick this show as a way to tell you about their program. So let me tell you what this is because it's pretty unique. The Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship is a one-year intensive podcast program. It delves into every imaginable aspect of the podcasting industry, from soup to nuts. It dissects all the information necessary to make a real show, not just recorded fireside chats. Now, what does that mean? It means that if I had had this six or seven years ago, I probably would have not made a lot of mistakes that I made in learning how to make a podcast. Now, who should apply, you ask? Writers, producers, storytellers, editors, print and radio reporters, and anyone considering a new career opportunity. Basically, anyone with a story to tell. So why apply to this fellowship? It's a commitment. And if you're really serious about a new career in podcasting or about upping your podcast game, then you want to find the best source for maximizing your time and effort spent. With the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship, you can learn everything you need to know on a schedule that accommodates working professionals. And it's connected. You receive advanced instruction from top New York City professionals working successfully in podcast and radio productions. Through this program, you can intern on one or more popular podcasts. Their students have gone to work at Huffington Post, 24-7 Sports, Talking Feds, Death, Sex, and Money, and many more. Students leave the program with a finished, ready-to-market pilot of their podcast, and they leave prepared to enter and work in this growing high-demand field. This is a very selective program. Apply to be one of only 10 people chosen from a highly competitive admissions process. The one-year in-person program costs $8,200, and the online-only version of the program will cost approximately half the price. Scholarships and financial aid are also available on a case-by-case -case basis. 
So here's the where of it all. You can take classes at the David Rakoff Podcast Studio on the Stony Brook Southampton campus, also at the Manhattan Center for Creative Writing and Film at 535 8th Avenue near Penn Station. And there's online instruction through Zoom. This includes weekly group discussions with all fellows and individual working sessions with instructors. The final deadline is July 20th, 2020. So, because the fellowship decided to only advertise on this show, it's important when you apply to let them know you got sent by me and off camera for an extension on the deadline. Specifically for our listeners only, the fellows deadline will be extended up until July 27th. Go to podcastfellows.com. That's podcastfellows.com and go to apply for a chance to be part of this phenomenal opportunity. That's podcastfellows.com and make sure to tell them off camera sent you. Now back to the show. I know you from Key and Peele, and I know you from Mad TV, and I was not aware until I started reading about you that your original ambition was to be a classically trained, serious thespian. Yeah. Then to see you in this film, I mean, there's some very deep, nuanced acting going on that, it, you know, when you say, oh, I had to learn not to screw up my face or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's like, well, here's, here's a muscle that's been maybe hiding a little bit for a long time. Or it's been laying dormant for a bit. Yeah. It's a muscle that was developed a long time ago, and I couldn't wait for it to come back. And I guess part of me, in that kind of um, bad mode, there's a bad habit I have of kind of getting into a give-up mode. And what do you mean? Be, like, like, you know, well, this, is, this seems good enough. This is good enough right here. I'll just stay right here. I was willing to do that in Chicago, and some, I was the effect of my life. I wasn't the cause of my life. Somebody else said, this is your chance. And I went, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Tina did it. Chris Farley did it, Tim Meadows did it, Bob Odenkirk did it, Rachel Dretch did it, Scott Adsit did it, Alan Alda did it, Alan Arkin did it, John Candy, Eugene Levy, name after name yeah. after name, Aykroyd, Belushi, Radner, you just keep going over the name. Well, this is the graduation. You're supposed to do it. If you have the chance to do it, you were asked out of these 50 people in this particular incarnation of Second City, out of all the talent that they could watch, you were asked to go and audition at 8H. Right. At Studio 8H in 30 Rock. Right, exactly. Right? You, I, which I never did, but you were asked to go do that. Were you asked to go do, to audition to for SNL? To go audition for SNL, but, but the deal, the offer for Mad TV and to audition for Mad TV came first. And I didn't have enough confidence myself to go, I'm good. I'm going to wait for these guys. They weren't going to cobble together to give me a special audition. Who was I? Right? right? Right. I didn't have the confidence to go, you know what? Do what you're going to do, Mad TV. I'm it. I'm the next thing. Lorne Michaels is going to pick me. I didn't have the confidence to, to even think well, those thoughts. Who would, though? I, I Nobody mean, would. I didn't have the confidence to think those thoughts. So I took the bird in the hand. Did you know that taking the bird in the hand, that that was the end of Saturday Night Live? Like, It wasn't the end of Saturday Night Live for me. My agent came back to me a few years later and said, look, you said you wanted a film career. You said you wanted a film career. You signed with SNL. You have to sign part of your contract is that the first few, you're going to be put in movies. Right, right. You're going to be put in Broadway video movies. Broadway video is in Lauren's company. Yeah. You'll be put into movies. That's an avenue we could take if you wanted to do that. And I said at that point in time, I had just purchased a house. And I said at that time, no, I'm settled here now. So then uh, that second chance, that second shot of me going and auditioning, I didn't take it. I just didn't take it. Because I, who knew? I, I just, I didn't take it. I didn't know, given the parameters at SNL, 
am I going to be able to express myself creatively there the way I've been given the opportunity to express myself at uh, Mad TV? Right. Frankly, the answer is no, because there's a certain, there's no editing at SNL. I'm right. being technical right now. There's right. no editing. And, and sometimes, uh, I can say it now because there's no threat of me being on SNL, <laughs> so I can say this now. I understand that there's a, an amount of time of programming that has to happen. That's why there's cue cards. Right. I think people need to understand that. But it also, I believe in a way, fetters the performer. These are terribly funny people. I mean, fantastically funny people on this show. It's a miracle the show gets made every week. And the fact of the matter is they have to read the cards. I never had to read a card on Mad TV. Yeah. I learned lines and I got to interact with the other actors. And, and so I kind of went, well, I'd be able to do that in the pre-tapes. If I was on SNL, I could do that in the pre-tapes. But uh, no, I think, I've, I think I've gotten what I wanted out of this experience. And I don't know that the experience would be better in New York. Um, so I, I said no. I said no. I, I said, I'm 34 and I think I'm, I think I'm good. I think I'm going to stay here and stake my claim. I'm fascinated at that point. If you already had ambitions for your own show at that point, didn't you? Didn't no, 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 no. I between, you were just in it. In Mad I just TV was. I'm like, I'm here now, and this the, the wheel. We're, we're pushing the wheel up the hill. There's another hill. If we can just get this here, inertia will make it go like that. Right. And we were pushing up the hill. But the thing is, I had helpers helping me push it up the hill. Managers, agents, they were helping me push it up the hill. Uh, goodwill from other people. And then certain projects came in that were really, uh, to this day, I've never said this before, to this day, I did a commercial for, the, for GMC, uh, for the GMC Denali during the NBA playoffs a few years back. And I go, was Saturday Night Live, we'll never know, would Saturday Night Live have given me the same opportunity that commercial gave me? It's all timing. So interesting. I don't know the answer. That commercial, I got the attention of a lot of people from that commercial, and I ended up on a sitcom because of that commercial. Because Keen Peel, it seems to me, is like, it, it seems like the, the result of making a better mousetrap, of looking at, looking at SNL, looking at Mad TV, and going, we could be doing so much more, and, and we could approach this differently, that, that I would have just assumed that you were plotting and planning the whole time. <laughs> Kudos to Jordan. It was Jordan who was plotting and planning the whole Interesting. time. Okay. Jordan, feeling once again, speaking of being fettered, Jordan, I know, felt fettered at Mad TV. Jordan was becoming, no one was pay, not enough people were paying attention. There were some people paying attention, but not enough people were paying attention that the greatest sketch writer of the 21st century was building his chops uh, incrementally on that television show. I'm sorry, he's the greatest sketch writer in North America. I completely Hands agree. Hands down. I, I completely agree. Our staff is filled with some of the other greatest sketch writers in North America. He, well, I'd throw Odenkirk in there, too. Definitely Odenkirk, who is our hero. Who is our, him and David are our heroes. Uh, definitely my heroes, I can speak, you know, but I can speak for Jordan, too. And, 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 and Bob and Dave are friends, you know. It was happening before his very eyes. I was there watching him do it. And we had talked about working together, and we'd done a couple things. in between. I was on the sitcom. He had done, a, um, he had done a, a, a pilot for Fox that didn't go. So my sitcom got canceled, and his pilot for Fox didn't go. And 
our manager said, would you guys be interested in doing something together? Because I've got a leverage situation that I think I can, or I've got a situation that I think I can leverage. And, and we did. And we said, yeah. I said, are you kidding me? I've been watching him. This might be a little bit revisionist history because I was spending a good deal of time going, I need to be the best possible actor I can be. But I remember going to table reads and Jordan would sit on that stage and he would perform. Instead of reading the script, he would get up and perform his sketch for the powers that be. He's a man of great courage professionally. He really is. He just has enough confidence to go, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do the work. And then he would do the work. And then he and I used to meet and we would, we would perform sketches to the point on the table read days to the point where all the writers and some of the producers would get super excited to see us perform our sketch. We didn't just read them at the table. We performed them. Does that come from an improv background? Absolutely. No, being st- Standing and interacting with each other, always better than reading it on the page. Always, 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 always. Interesting. Always. So, so when you guys got the opportunity to, to write your own sketches for Key and Peele, how much space would you leave for that very kind of thing? In the beginning, in the first season, we didn't leave much space. We didn't improvise a lot in the first season. You didn't. It was, Jordan said, I want finally to be, get, now that I've been given the opportunity, I want you and me to sit here and write bulletproof sketches so that we get lauded for r- good writing. And so he I was is like, a planner. Oh, he's a planner. He's, he's a, a chess plotter. player, a plotter, a chess player. A stra- all in a, I'm not, not pejorative, in a good way. Yeah. A plotter, planner. But what's so amazing about Jordan Peele is that he's a planner and a creative simultaneously. Right. There's very few of them. Simultaneously. I try every day to find my, put myself in business with those kinds of people. He was the one saying, let's make it bulletproof. Then we sat down. He, I sat down with him one day and I said, look, buddy. We've got a skill set that I think we could be utilizing more. You and I, I believe we are magic together when we're together and we're improvising. Because very often when we improvise, when we're together, when we're a force multiplier for each other, the improv that comes out is 50% of the time usable. That's, not, that's, that's a great number in improv. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've met a couple of improvisers in my life who are, who, whose hit ratio is like 82%. Sam, that's fucking sick. I, that's I, fucking sick. 82%, if you and I are 56% hit, hit ratio on um, enhancement improvs, improvs that we're trying to use to enhance a piece of written material, we got to improvise more. We've got to spend more time having fun. And I would say in the history of King Peel, a lot of the scenes that seem to really crackle for people are when Peter is just locked off a couple of cameras, wide here, punch in here, punch in there, action. Let them, let her rip, guys. Yeah. And those sketches have their own fireworks. Then there's sketches like Negro Town, Les Mis, who have their own fireworks. That's Peter's yeah. oeuvre. There's this great quote about improv of, you, you, and I'm, I'm sure this is the first thing anyone latches onto, but I latched onto it, which is, uh, first you, you, get, you get up in the air and then you build the plane. Right, exactly. Or the, uh, the, the other, the other, uh, the other uh, saying is, uh, jump off the cliff and figure it out on the way down. Right, and, yeah. and the idea that, that uh, often in improv it starts in the middle, and, and I don't think that you could make the cinematic level of sketches that were only two or three minutes long in Key and Peele consistently if you didn't have that idea of, oh, we don't need a setup or a beginning. or a, Like so many of, of the sketches do feel like you're, you're dropped right in the middle. Yeah, there's a context that you're missing, but it's delicious that you're missing it. And then our improv training comes into it because of this, Sam. 
People think that improvisation is moving forward. What improvisation really is, it's walking backward. And while I'm still looking at you, like right now I go, oh, I'm here with Sam Jones. Now as I back up, I see there's a light there. Oh, what's the light? Oh, that's a set. Oh, I'm on a set. Oh, so Sam Jones must be a person who works on a set. Then I keep backing up. I see this chair. I see that chair. I go, oh, he's an interviewer. Then I keep backing up to Nate and I go, oh, that's the sound man. What's this room? Oh, this is like a small show. It's backing up that gives you discovery. Giving the larger worldview. Yes, the one, as you back up, you can create a larger worldview. People think it's moving forward. People always go, I can't think that fast. No, 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 no. Don't think that fast. Just listen to the last thing he said. The first thing you do in the sketch is you set the parameters first. In sports, Dr. Naismith on down the line said, so then what we'll do is we'll put these squares here. 94 feet. 94 feet here. We'll agree that anything outside of these lines, the ball is no longer in play and you have to give it to the other team. We set up those rules. Then inside those parameters, do whatever we want. Right. You do whatever you want. So in a sketch like Substitute Teacher, yeah. we set up, my friend Rich, our, our friend Rich Tellerico, who wrote the sketch, he set up the rules in the, deft, in the most deft way he could. He set up the rules with a lot of aplomb, using social constructs. I'm from the inner city. You already make observations about what kind of person Garvey is, right? For sure. For yeah. sure, right? He goes, I'm from the inner city. I ain't here. To, I ain't going to take nobody's guff. Let's take roll call. You don't know what yet, but you know who he is. So you already immediately have you immediately know. you know who he is, and in your brain, brrr, you have a list of assumptions about that human. Right. Then when he says Jay Quellen, you still don't know what's going on, and you go, your brain might be going brrr, 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 right here. There must be a black girl here. Right. Exactly. Then you cut to the classroom. There are no black kids. Okay. All right. You're watching it. You're backing up. You're backing up. You're backing up. Then that girl raises her hand and she goes, do you mean Jacqueline? (laughs) All right, Jake Quellen. Right? Those are the rules. We just set up the rules. Right. And then all I do is play basketball for the next four minutes. Balake, D-Nice, A-A-Ron, O'Shag Hennessy, Timothy. Right. You you go, oh, I know the rules. The audience goes, I know the rules. And then we delight in how we play the game. And the audience does the rest. They do all the work for you. They do all the work for you. And, and, and uh, Del Close said one time, somebody told me that he said one of the best scenes he ever saw, somebody had felled a tree. And they, felled a tr- they fell a tree. The tree goes down. And there was a nice talk between these two characters for like five minutes. And then the other character got up and he stepped over the tree. Everybody, including the other person, had forgotten about the tree. Everyone in the audience had forgotten about the tree. Dell had forgotten about the tree. Everybody had forgotten about the tree, except for he remembered the world he was in so much. He remembered to step over the log he had cut down three minutes before. Right. And he goes, there. It's a callback. It's a callback. But all a callback is, is you investing in the given circumstances that you created. Well, and that is... Okay, so this is the final quote that I found in that, in that book that just blew me away, which is, the goal is never to get the laugh. Like, the way right. to be funniest is to never try to be funny. It's to try to find something honest and pure about a personality. And, and even like that, even stepping over the tree, that's not him trying to get a laugh. That's going, I put a tree here, now I have to step over it. It's logic. It's logic. And Keith Johnstone would say the same thing about logic. If you are crawling across a a, a landscape 
We don't see the landscape. We don't know what it is yet, but we all start assuming it's a desert. We all start assuming it's a desert. So we can assume it's a desert, right? But we don't know that yet. But if I crawl across the landscape and I go like this. <laughs> sure, you're Matt Damon in The Martian. I'm Matt Damon in The Martian. I didn't set anything up desert-wise yet, so you'll forgive me. If That's we, the logic. Right. If yeah. we've done all the moon stuff and I'm defying gravity, and then I start going, what? No. What's space band? Yeah. Space band wasn't in my purview of what this scene no, was going to be. Band. We're not doing space band. And then somebody else comes out and goes, so then what happens, because That's logic That's like is, the desperate trying to get the laugh there, Yeah, right? it's like, I'm going to do, 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 no, don't play drums on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's you trying to get a laugh. Then, then the people on the back, what we call the back line, those guys are all going like this. Their brains are going because they're trying to find a way to come out and justify and relogicize. Right. Your, they have to make, they have to rent, they have to turn your mistake into a gift. Which is the aspect of, of always having someone's back. <laughs> I got your back, right? So, because, but now, if you make, if you jump off the cliff. And you and the, and the scene partner, if you d- both of you don't know where you are, you both kind of just figure out where you are. So that sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll go, okay, j- jettison the where, jettison the environment. Who, who's he? And then you're looking at me going, oh, fuck, I do not have the environment. And so we're both looking at each other. And we, so we, so, so we, can you see desperation sometimes in a situation? It's never desperate. It's just we don't have clarity yet. Uh-huh. That's all. And then I look at you and I go, all right, so we don't have the environment yet. So I'm looking at Sam, and Sam's looking at me, and I go, Jim, if we don't hurry it along, mom's going to be here in like two minutes. And then you go, you don't think I know mom's going to be here in two minutes? Okay, good. All right, good. So we know we're brothers, and we have a sense of what our relationship is together. Right. You bicker all the time. You bicker all the... Right. So we're... Okay, good. All right. So, and and then I did come up with, uh, mom's going to be here if we don't finish. Now, that's open-ended enough for you to go, all right, I'm doing it. Jesus Christ. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Okay, balloons, uh, uh, birthday We just keep working back. That's the ping pong. That's, the pi- that's ping pong. So I go, okay, good, okay, good. So now, now we can assume we're either, we've got a couple of choices and either one can make it. And I have no panic and you have no panic because no matter what choice I'm about to make, you're going to follow me. So I go, are we at my mom's house? Are we at our apartment? Are we at the uh, park? Are we, where are we? I get to pick wherever we are. Now, somebody else who got a little nervous because Lauren Michaels is in the audience tonight, somebody else comes out and goes, and I'm like, no, no, what the fuck? Why are you you a dinosaur? (laughs) They're a dinosaur, and you were trying to figure out where you were, but they entered before you could figure out what the environment was. All improv is who, what, where. So you're trying to figure out where you are. Then the fourth person comes out, runs up to the third person, and goes, Tom, we're not doing the costume stuff until the kids get here. He saved us. Right. So we take Tom's mask off and look at Tom and go, it's the, the character is saying, Tom, we're not going to do the dinosaur stuff until after the kids arrive, until the grandkids get here. And then Tom should, as a good improviser, go, no, you're right, Jim. You're right. I'm sorry. I just got so excited about the costume. And then Jim, what the actor is saying, what the fuck are you doing to them, dude? Right. Don't do that to them. <laughs> They're trying to build the environment. Then we can enter if it's appropriate. That's what the actor is telepathically saying to the other actor. It's so, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's so it's amazing. Such a, it's a crazy thing. But once you learn those and you start improvising, that builds an intimacy between these people because 
even though nothing's going to happen, if you had a horrible show and everybody hated it, your life goes on. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not Steel Team 6 in a bot bot <laughs> You know what I mean? It's not Steel Team 6 in a bot bot It's just an improv show. But the stakes feel high because of the sense of embarrassment you could experience or the sense of wanting the show simply to be good. So to you, the stakes are high. Sure. And you, you are at war together. And so you become a tight group. And I got your back, I got your back, I got your back. And then this person goes off and does this thing over here. And all of a sudden, but does he have our back? It's so brilliant how the film sets that up in the real world and on the stage. It's the same situation. It's exactly the same situation. What's the draw to it for you that really makes... It's the fact that you get to do the thing that's the hardest challenge in acting. You're trying to make it look spontaneous in the moment when you're acting. But in improv, you are doing that. Right. Because you are... Your playwriting, it's instant playwriting. I heard you in an uh, interview, and you were talking about a scene with two people raking. Yes, me and my friend T.J. Jagodowski, yeah. And the idea that occasionally both of you stumble upon something at the same time that takes the sketch to another level that no one could have written or assumed. The night that my friend and I first improvised that rake scene, it's one of the greatest moments in my professional career. In my professional career, I don't know that anything will touch it. If the next movie I did was with Leonardo DiCaprio, it may not be as special as that night on that stage in Chicago in 2001. Well, that speaks to why you're doing this and, and that you're doing it for the right reasons. That yeah. what turns you on is, is the purity of an artistic ex- experience. The purity of an artistic experience. And I don't, and, and, and now in acting, there have been moments where I have felt completely in the moment, oh, I didn't learn a line there. I needed to say these words to affect change in another human. That's not a line. The, the, the ether gave me these words, the playwright, sure, gave me these words to affect change in you. All I'm going to do is use this sentence to embolden you to get married. I'm going to use this sentence to scare the shit out of you. I'm going to use this sentence to rip you into an asshole and destroy you as a human. I'm going to use this sentence to make you make the biggest change and most positive change in your life. That's what I'm going to use these words for. And, and when, when, when they go away and they turn molecularly turn into a intention yeah. and not a memorized line in your mind, you know you're doing the right thing. But the reason I love improv clearly is because I'm a big proponent of, you know, Sam, here's a sentence and there's a piece of punctuation. And when we read a book or we read a script... There's a millimeter of space between that piece of punctuation and the capital letter of the next sentence. That millimeter, to me, may as well be a hundred-mile chasm. Because in that millimeter, between that period and that capital letter, you can do anything. You can do anything. That is so... It's like, it's like what they, musicians say, that the, the, um, the notes are silver, but the rests are gold. The, rest, the notes are silver, but the rests are gold. Is yeah. that, that's the same thing, it's right? It's the exact same concept. God. That moment between that piece of punctuation and that letter, that's improvisation. More often than not. Or what happens is the line up to that piece of punctuation informs the behavior you're going to do. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you had followed a very classical path small theater to off-Broadway to whatever, and never had, never taken this 19-year detour mm-hmm. on to sketch comedy and improv. I mean, do you wonder about the 
the volume and the depth of how it's changed your approach to acting and, and how, I don't know, some people talk about that idea of, of, you know, you're holding on so tight to what it is you think you should be doing that you miss the opportunities of what you should really be doing or something. And it seems like you didn't. You didn't hold on to the Saturday Night Live thing. You didn't hold on to, oh, I'm a serious classical actor. Yeah. You did let the rhythms of whatever push you a little bit. And maybe that's because you wanted people to like you or you wanted to, f- whatever it I is. I was about to say that. Uh, once again, it goes, uh, at least you're addicted to broccoli. I, can, I think I can, comp- no, I don't think, I can confidently say that the decision not to go I, I, there was a fork in the road after I finished graduate school, May of, two, of 1996. Okay. I decided I have two choices. Go make my friend's independent film back home in Detroit, or go to the Illinois Shakespeare Festival in Champaign-Urbana. I made the decision out of fear, and that's why I'm sitting here today. I miss my mom, I miss my home, and I'm afraid of disappointing my friend. So I didn't follow my dream. I did the other thing, and it took me on this amazing path. I'm not telling people make decisions out of fear, but I'm telling you, I made that decision out of fear. And I'm, that's when, when I said earlier I, I've lived a charmed life, I'm very fortunate that that worked out the way it did. Well, I think it's also brave to admit that you made that decision out of fear. Made the decision out of fear. Made the decision out of lack, because I was afraid to not be with my people. What, I'm just gonna go live? I let the questions and the stories invade my mind. Well, where am I gonna live in Champaign-Urbana? I don't know anybody in Champaign-Urbana. Keegan, look in the mirror at who you are. You're a gregarious guy. You're gonna make friends in the cast, in the play that you're doing. But I had so much self-doubt. I'm like, no, I'm gonna go home to my friends because all my friends will be cast in that movie. I'll go see my friends. And then I was cast in the movie and my best friend from college, she, was my, she played my lead, my, my, uh, the female lead. And, and um, it was a real fun, dramatic movie that I made. It's so funny that, but the, the underlying reason I did it was because I was afraid to go branch out into a new experience. Or I might be right at this moment reading Coriolanus or Timon of Athens or Two, Men of, two Gentlemen of Verona right now getting ready to prep for uh, the Eugene, uh, the Oregon Theater Festival, Colorado Shakespeare Festival, Utah yeah. Shakespeare Festival. These are the things that I dreamt of doing, that I was super, super excited about doing. And then my life took this completely different path and was so fulfilling. I mean, if I had... I'm making a weird argument. If I had said, but this is what I've, I've prepared for. There is no other option. I prepared for this. I'm going to Champaign-Urbana. I would probably never have ended up sitting on the stage in Chicago, Illinois, in, in October of 2001, knowing that we were probably in this moment the people responsible for offering some kind of catharsis to the worst thing that has ever happened in American history. And I sat on that stage with with my comrades and said words that made an audience explode with an expression that they needed and yearned to express And in that moment, I went, oh, God, this is art. And I would not have reached that space had I made that other decision. Which sounds like the artistic decision. It sounded like the artistic decision. Isn't that crazy? So who's to say? It's the vagaries of life. 
Well, and what an example of the vagaries of life. I mean, look at your life and, and, and how you couldn't make up a trajectory like yours if, if you were. Oh, if you wrote the script, People nobody would be buy like, it. Come on. Nobody. The, the poor little biracial adopted boy who ended up, you know what I mean? Who's, uh, who's adopted by biracial uh, Interracial couple and bought it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, that's the thing about life, isn't it? It's like, I've told, I, told, I told my uh, a partner of mine who I'm working with creatively, I said to my partner, I said, uh, they said, but, that's it, but it's a true story. And I went, right. But just because it's a true story doesn't mean all of that has to go into the, into the piece. Sometimes the true thing comes across as so unrealistic, or sometimes the true thing isn't relevant in the storytelling. Yeah. Well, you always got to serve the audience in the story, right? You must serve story and audience. And so we're going, yeah, but I really need that part to be in there. You need it to be in there, or you want it to be in there. And there are things that happened and that we did that Mike Berbiglia cut out of the movie. And I remember watching the final cut at the Tribeca Film Festival and going, oh, what a fantastic cut. And the thing he cut, I adored. Really? Adored. And then there are other times when I go, get your ego out of the way, King, and you just want to see yourself on screen more. Acting but your ass you want off. To see, oh, man, look at me. But what we really need to see is this moment, this component moment, which is connected to this component moment, which is connected to this component moment. That's what we need for the movie. Well, I hope everyone sees it because it's it's... It really is one of those experiences where you're in a world that you're not familiar with, right? And and you get to go deep in it, and it gets to reveal truths about people that anyone could take from that and relate it to their own lives. And and your performance, uh, you know, I, I can only say that I, I hope this leads to just more and more left turns for you, it, it, so we can see you in just you know, uh, it seems like whatever you take on. You you make it accessible and unique and 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 I feel like you've scratched just scratched the surface. Of what Me you're too. Do. No, I feel the same way. And, and and I think about this movie. I want people to say, just go. Oh my God! I just saw a drama about comedy. Yeah. And it's so funny. Mike Berbiglia has done something that has really proven a, a quote that Stanislavski said. He said, "Generality is the enemy of all art." There's nothing general about this movie. No. It's the most specific movie you could possibly see. And yet is the most universal movie, too. And I think that you can't sit there, if you've ever had any artistic ambitions in your life, you can't sit there and watch that film without feeling some anxiety and without feeling the stress of being on stage, having something that's not yet fully formed and and being in this high wire act of, of, of trying to pull something off that no one knows collectively what's going to happen. And, and if you've ever wanted to do something and if you've ever had an ambition to do something that was outside the normal rule-following way of, mm-hmm. of approaching your life, then this film, you'll relate to it. You absolutely will. I encourage every, everybody to see it because I just think Michael has done a superb job of taking a snapshot of what it means to be, to live in a world right between despair and hope, right between the certain and the uncertain. Right. Well, listen, it's it's fascinating to talk to you, and and I feel like I could talk to you for hours. So. Oh, I could talk to you for hours. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Great insights. This. Great insights, Sam. And, and uh, no, it's my my pleasure. All right. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you, man. Thank you.